Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Right. Well, we'd like to welcome everyone to our Mornings with Joel, the CRE podcast. We're very excited to have you here today. And uh, we have a very special guest uh, with us, uh, one of my boys from back in the day, Dale Burnett. And uh, Dale, good to see you, man. It's been a minute. Happy to have good, you. Good to see you, too. Thank God for Zoom. Yeah, exactly. Each other in a while. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's been a minute. You know, I, I don't know if we've actually got together and hung out since we were... Uh, I don't know. I think we were down in Soho eating lunch somewhere on one of those cobblestone streets, you know? Yeah. That was quite some years ago. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's exciting. And um, I'm glad we were able to finally get together and, and have this podcast. So um, just one thing to mention, and, and I'm going to circle back to it in a minute, but, you know, your work as of late has been focused on the equity side of the house. I know you've been all over the place. You've done a lot over the years. Just to kind of open up the discussion, why equity? Why, why not debt? Like, most people, why'd you focus on equity? Well, well, there's a couple of things with that. I mean, you know, first of all, I'm sure we'll talk about it. You know, I'm uh, in partnership with Tammy Jones, who runs a big debt platform. So, so that's a great product. It's, it's necessary. It's the majority of capital is the majority of the capital stack. So I would definitely say, you know, debt plays a prominent role in our industry and there's nothing wrong with being involved in it. Um, from my end, you know, it really just stems from how I got into the industry, which really was buying real estate personally as an owner in my early, early 20s after I graduated from college in, you know, downtown Brooklyn, and which later became sort of like super hot. Yeah. And then me ending up working for Blackstone, which was just an equity shop. And that was my first exposure to the whole concept of private equity. Right. So just imagine that, like your first exposure to private equity is the number one private equity company in the world. So I was just kind of like, I need to do this because like I'm flying around on jets with these guys. I need this. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know what these guys are doing, but I need to be doing that. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> um, and really, that was my exposure. So, I mean, if my exposure would have started out on the lending side, it's possible that I would have done that. But I really became exposed through, you know, Blackstone and, you know. Worked there for five years as a captive consultant. Then went to business school to just become a deal guy. So that that's 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 why equity. That's how I got into it. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. So just to go into a, a little bit more of your background. So you started off there, and then you kind of progressed, and uh, you had a few spots before you wound up at um at Assurance, uh, yep. the insurance company. So how did all that come together? It's interesting. Uh, you know, I don't know who are all the people that be listening to this, but you know, hopefully it's edifying because I think my pathway is a pathway. I think a lot of people don't take it. As I said, I was, you know, consulting with Blackstone, went to business school, came out, and I could have tried to, let's say, go back to Blackstone or go to Starwood or do something like that. And I had a good, I had a good situation with Blackstone. Mm -hmm. But immediately upon wanting to get into the deal business, I, I knew that I needed reps. So it's like working out or like, after, I was like, I need reps. I can't go to a Blackstone or a KKR way like they're elephant hunting. And I was like, I need reps. So th this is kind of one of the biggest things I think for younger people coming to the industry and even mid-level executives where you just got to be honest 
about what it is you need to do in order to progress in your career. You know, a lot of people, if they would have come from a shiny company like Blackstone and went to a top business school, would have been like, I want to get into something that looks real shiny. I knew I needed work. I knew I needed reps. So I actually got, it was a good time at that point. It was just before the great financial crisis. So things were hot. So I got a bunch of offers and I chose to go to AIG one because they had a global platform. So I knew I would be able to work all around the world Two, They did tons of deals more in the middle market. So just lots of deal flow, lots of different partners. And then three, they had a $25 billion group. And at that time, it was really AIG Investments, which was a trillion-dollar asset manager. So this was like a premier place at the time. And, and I chose to go there. And in the first 30 days of my employment with AIG, I closed one deal in Poland and one deal in Tampa, Florida. So this was like what I was looking for. I was like, I, I got to I need, I need these chops in order to be great. So I did that for a year, I think, for a few years. And then I went on to work on a team that was responsible for emerging Europe. So I invested in deals all along, sort of from Spain to Prague to downtown Moscow in a partnership with Lincoln Property Company. Super prolific. Just made billions of dollars for the firm building class A Western grade office and retail and multifamily in markets that never had it. So Mm. that stuff just became hugely valuable, you know, Warsaw. And I did that. And then the great financial crisis came, things went left and went haywire. And I I made the decision that I think most people miss, which is they brought in a restructured person to help work with the group. And, you know, it was like when you turn on the lights and roaches scatter, (laughs) He walked in and like everybody scattered and I was just sitting there just like, I'll work with him. You know, I want to do, you know, I want to figure out restructuring and do all that stuff. And I did that. I ended up reporting to the firm steering committee and obviously AIG is a huge company. I ended up reporting to the Fed and just sort of working at that level of visibility and intensity and scrutiny at the firm and ended up turning around the business. And it, instead of winding it down, as a function of the bailout, we did such a good job, the, the, the business got relaunched. And mm. so I think making all those decisions really helped me get this diverse experience. You know, I'm helping to sell the Asia funds in Asia with Merrill Lynch, restructuring single assets. I'm winding our, down our interest in funds. I'm restructuring a big venture that we have in Tokyo and Rapungi. I'm doing all these things. I would never otherwise have those experiences except yeah. that I raised my hand to become a problem solver. And before you knew it, headhunters started calling me. Mm. And literally, headhunters were calling me and I would be like, I think you got the wrong person, man. Like, you know, I'm getting these calls to run groups. And I'm just like, I don't think you're really looking for me to run a group. And yeah. one headhunter was just like, no. Looking for you, like let's go, <laughs> and then that's how I ended up getting pulled into Assurance, and I had a couple of other opportunities to run groups that I won't mention the companies now. But, but yeah, man, that was how it was, man. I I took yeah. that position. I did a small stint with Merrill Lynch as well prior to that, but you know they just got decimated in the great financial crisis and the private equity side. So yeah. um, it was really just doing all these odd jobs around the world in different functions at AIG that helped me just build up a resume that is very atypical compared to, you know, the I go and I invest in stuff. You know, I did mm-hmm. way more than that. 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's really powerful. So, <clears throat> you know, you I think there's a lesson to be learned there. You know, take advantage of opportunities. Don't be afraid to put your neck out there and and get involved and you know, really show that you're willing to uh to be boots on the ground and make things happen as opposed to uh, you know, running for cover, you know. Yeah, I mean, actually what I would say too, I think the lesson really there is is that opportunity will be disguised as inconvenient work. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you don't recognize That's the way it, to put it. You know, so like we tend to think opportunity is going to be, you know, sort of like, this is amazing. We want to give you a million dollars. And like that opportunity generally don't look like that. Right. 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 I mean, we know that. But, you Mm -hmm. know, opportunity looks like, hey, this problem that I can solve that gives me a unique advantage to take control or be a part of something that no one else can because there's something that they can't fix or aren't willing to do. And I'm willing to do that. And then inherently, you know get the benefits of solving that problem. So when you look at opportunity as the, the chance to solve a problem and demonstrate value by being a problem solver, you get on a lot of good lists because at the end of the day, people are running big companies. In our industry, people are doing deals where the debt or equity. And at the end of the day, people want to have people working for them that can solve problems and get things yeah. done. And once you do that, you kind of just go to a different radar. Yeah. I try to explain that all the time, especially to the, you know, younger generation is that, you know, people pay for value. You know, what value am I going to get from you? You know, and it's it's not necessarily a personal thing. It's all about what's in it for me. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you could bring that value and produce and, and show value, then obviously you get rewarded for it. So, you know, it's a huge lesson to learn and, and not expect handouts from people. You yeah, know? no, I think it's a great thing for particularly the younger people who will be in the industry and who will hear this to just you are at the beginning of a losing proposition. If you enter your job and you're saying to yourself, well, what are you going to do for me? Or there's no free lunch or they don't have hybrid or they don't have all those things. I know this generation is very much, you know, a little bit more focused on themselves. Rightfully so. They're more into their own mental health. They're more into their pursuits outside of work, which need to be supported and justice. And I think all that's really positive, but at the end of the day, you're working at a business where there's a financial bottom line in addition to hopefully other bottom lines. The, the, the reality is if I'm your boss or the owner of your company and I'm spending my time thinking about what you need, you are just at a disadvantage. Yeah. yeah. Just at a disadvantage. <clears throat> but if, if, if I'm spending my time with you and I know that you help me solve the problems that I need, you'll end up getting the other things you want because people you go. will solve the needs of people that create value. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's the point. You could write that on the wall, man, because that's that's so important to really getting things done. So I'm glad you brought that out. So tell me a little bit about your your work at Assurant, because um, obviously, uh, you know, you were doing some big things there. That's probably the time where you were probably the hardest to catch up with. You know, <laughs> but first of all, man, don't, 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 don't paint me like that. Man. No, nah, we're all busy, man. So I get it. Yeah, get it. you know, but but I do come back. You gotta don't don't, oh, yeah, lie, don't yeah, let the nah, people. Man. I do come back. We good, bro. Um, we good. We good. <laughs> but um, no. So the short was very interesting, and uh, I remember when I first took the job, I had a conversation with Ken McIntyre, which everybody here knows. You know, because he used to obviously the role that he played in Reap before he went to Reese, and he was just kind of like, you should get the firm to back you to launch your own fund and do all this stuff. And I was just like, hmm, it's interesting. You know, I just put the, you know, the thought in the back of my head. So came in there, you know, they had a, a nice business, a few billion dollars, and uh, a person that built it was retiring. So 
So I took over for the person that built it. So here I am, I report to the board, CIO. I, I work with the CFO, the form, the firm. I oversee the global portfolio of owned assets for our, our, our office, offices around the world. And so it's kind of this big job in a way in this Fortune 300 firm. And I am pretty much the most senior, one of the most senior black people in the firm, which is not good. I don't say that proudly, right? That's, that's ridiculous. But anyway, and so I, I got a chance to sort of just demonstrate my chops by taking this portfolio and pruning it, making it good, harvesting you know, assets, you know, reconstituting deals, reshaping the portfolio, investing on their behalf. And, just institutionalizing the practice the way that a private equity practice would would be run. And so I got a lot of positive press from that. And so the firm sold a huge company in its portfolio and and just was flush with cash and was willing to invest in different businesses. So I was able to be one of the people to help co-found a registered investment advisor to now, instead of managing the firm's balance sheet only, we would go out and manage third-party capital. Oh, okay. So I was managing the firm's balance sheet, putting that money outside, um, investing in joint ventures with, you know, best in class operators and developers around the country. And then I just raised, you know, a little bit of capital and was investing in funds. And then we had a CLO business and some other things. So I was doing that, you know, for the whole time. But part of why I got busy is because I was building a third party business while doing my day job. Mm. And that went well. We, we have one asset left in that fund. Um, we're going to have like maybe a 21, 22 IRR there. So, you know, we did really well. But, you know, this just came a time where I was just basically hit that ceiling. And I'm really gung ho about this where you have to figure out the point in your career, particularly as a person of color, where you just got to stand up for what you're worth. And you got you to gotta develop the fortitude and the confidence to ask for what you're worth. And I was like, you know, the guy, the investors love me here. The firm is highly reliant on my team and our skill set to produce gains for the street and, and for the firm. And I just need to run this business, not for you, but for myself. It's just, this is my business and you should get behind me. You should be excited about that. And you talk about diversity and some things opened up where I was able to make that request and, I basically spun my team out of a Fortune 300 firm to create my new business. They, you know, gave me the portfolio to manage. They gave me, you know, fresh equity in the nine-figure amount. They gave me my track record, the team, so and just partnered with us. And so I was able to go from managing a business there to doing something that, frankly, you only really hear about, you know, our our, our white counterparts doing, which is getting a, a board of a stock exchange traded fortune ranked company to support the spin out of a business under the leadership of a a largely African-American led team. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's kind of what I was able to pull off. You let me tell it, God is good. There's a lot of smart Mm -hmm. people, but you know, it's got to take a little bit more to being smart because there's definitely people (laughs) smarter than me. And yeah, that's what I did over the six years there. But um, it was was a, a long slog of building up a track record that, you know, couldn't be deniable, couldn't be denied. And then, mm-hmm. and then putting my chips on the table and saying, this is what I'm worth. And this is, this is what I need from you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that's good. I mean, you proved your worth. So then it's, it's almost like the uh, 
rookie that goes into the NFL, right? They got to prove themselves. And once they do, it's like, hey, you know, it's time now for the big money. Yeah, so, uh, so you did. but they usually don't do that for us. I'm just going to tell you. Yeah, but, yeah, well, you know, especially in the business world, when it comes down to equity and things like that, that's another game. So absolutely, that's good. So talk to me about two other things. What what about um, your your company, Praxis Housing Initiatives? And then I'll uh, jump into a little bit about what you're doing currently with BIG. So, um, sure. So Praxis, I'm the chairman of the board of Praxis. Praxis is, I think, the lar- at this point, the largest provider of supportive housing in New York City. Mm-hmm. So we provide housing for disenfranchised populations, people with HIV, people that are homeless, homeless families, people that, you know, require harm reduction services because they're getting off of drugs, but, you know, obviously have the potential to be productive mm-hmm. if they can have stable, <clears throat> stable housing. Right. And so we've kind of changed the game in the time that I've been involved from just providing this housing to actually building green buildings, mm. like certified green buildings and housing people in them from these populations and doing green roofs and gardening and programs for children and all these different things, really to demonstrate that you can serve this population and make the city a better place. And you can do it in a first class way. You don't have to offer garbage to this population yeah. because. They're, you know, disenfranchised, disenfranchised in some way. You can actually build great things, do great things, finance it, create a great opportunity, partner with all the services that the federal government and city have to offer through HPD and the like and human resources associations for the state and do something good. And and that's what we've done. And so, like I said, I think we're the largest provider, one of, of, of supportive housing for New York City. And that's just been a labor of love. I, I, I joined the board probably when it was seven, eight million dollars. And I mean, we'll probably be a hundred million dollars in not too long with, you know, several assets that we've owned and built around the city with the support of, you know, lots of politicians and government programs and the like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that's really exciting. So, you know, I didn't know much about what you were doing there, but that's, um, you know, it's kind of interesting despite all the other activities and the building of, of your own platform and building it for other companies and everything else, you still got to take some time to do for others because that's where the joy comes in. You know, it's not necessarily closing the big deal, but it's also giving back and helping people that won't yep. get that opportunity. Yeah, no, that's big for me. You know, that's just kind of in my, my DNA. You know, I come from, you know, this job, I mean, I come from, you know, like the street, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, good family, you know, you know, strict mom and you know i'm jamaican and you know we, we we had to do it the right way but you know majority of time is still spent outside and outside was crazy yeah place when you're growing up in flat east flatbush and in and queens and going to high school in the south side queens and all this stuff it was it was real so i i look at myself as a product of, of just grace and and prayer and definitely somebody who at many times was just a circumstance away from being dead or in jail. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, absolutely. Yeah, like, know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's just crazy because I look back sometimes, I'm like, yeah, I look back at certain mm-hmm. points and it's just like, man, I feel like I was almost trying to get myself you know, killed or locked. They're like, you know, you're just young and, and stupid. And so yeah. any way that I could give back, particularly the young people or the people that just kind of on the hard road, you know, I try to, you know, and um, whether it be in things like Praxis um, or other things that I've done or 
it's just on that that one on one, or if it's just you know a kid going through something that I connect with through my church, where I'm just kind of like, you know what, a little on my part could end up being a lot for for somebody this, else. Yeah, for somebody else. So, yeah. so I try, man. I, I love that stuff, and yeah. I try as as best as I can to just do as much as I can. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned that. I I had to laugh myself. You know, you look at all that's going on in the Bronx. We got a couple of projects we're looking at up there right now. And uh, one of the neighborhoods, I was like, man, I remember that street. I was looking at it on Google Earth. And I was like, I remember running for my life up here. You know, <laughs> gunshots and everything. Yeah, <laughs> Almost having a fight in this park. And it was just like all kind yeah. of stuff, man. And, and now it's just totally transformed, especially up there in the South Bronx, you know, where they have yep. the museum of hip hop and everything. So uh, it's, it's quite an exciting time. But um, so talk to me about, uh, you know, what you're doing now with Big. You know, that's... Uh, that's been an exciting uh, revelation as to what's going on there. I know it's relatively new for you. Yeah. it during COVID. So what, what's going on there? What you up to? Yeah. So I'll tell you one, you talk about Universal Hip Hop Museum. I work with them a lot and the board there to help try to pull that together. And okay. you know, they had a lot of great momentum. So that's a, so it's another place where, you know, you try to give back. And so I know those guys pretty well. By the way, just, so, just to mention uh, one of my buddies down here, I've, I've got a collection of flyers and other memorabilia from back in those days. And they keep telling me I need to donate that to the museum. So we might need to catch up on that at one point. So yeah, no, nah, let yeah, me know. I know, stuff, the, man. <laughs> nah, I know the curator. So just, just let me know and I'll facilitate <laughs> the conversation. They would love that. So with basis, so basically what effectively what I did was created a company in partnership with Tammy Jones and, you know, Tammy is just a rock star. Mm-hmm. She's done you know, well over $4 billion of transaction, founded basis in 2009, has, you know, a Fanny desk and, and um, I think Freddie desk, I'm sorry, and um, CMBS business, partnership with New York City, you know, funding developers of color. She has a, two bridge funds at this point. Just She just built a prolific credit-oriented private equity business. It was just a marriage of, um, you know, just with just great synergy, you know, I have an equity business and I'm spinning out. I'm a person of color. She's a woman of color, black female CEO, obviously. And she was a friend. And I I had convened a dinner for her and Kirk Sykes and myself and Congressman Meeks, who's a good friend and mentor and fraternity brother of mine. And so, you know, we were all hanging out. And, you know, everybody sort of went to the bathroom and I was just like, hey, Tim, you know, I'm doing this. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm working on. You know, what, what would you think about this? Just asking for advice. And she was like, I think you should do it with me. What do you think? And I was just kind of like, it's like, ah, oh, I didn't think about that. You know, and I'm not sure why I didn't think about it. But, um, and it just turned out to make sense. She's a middle market player. I'm a middle market player. Obviously, you know, my team is, my leadership team is actually all people of color, you know, black and Asian. And she obviously is a leader of the team, you know, female and African-American leadership and it was just one of those things where it was just kind of like we do the same thing just a different product in the same market i have the expertise you have all the investors and we can form a venture here to 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 do this and broaden what the basis family of companies can do and so we created big equity which you know big obviously standing for basis investment group and you know us being the equity players and now we're just a middle market you know investor on behalf of the institutional lps we manage Separate managed, separately managed accounts for 
LPs as well as commingled fund vehicles on behalf of you know pension sovereigns and hopefully in the future endowments. And so we're just doing that now and um, you know looking to just take the industry by storm. Like I said, we finished our 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 first fund now, which is going to be a, a twenty plus IRR. It's a great tracker. We're going to go into a new club vehicle with some pensions now and finish that and then do a large, you know, co-mingled fund. And for Tammy's part, she's finishing up a fundraise now. They're killing it. You know, they in their first round, they've already closed more than what their last fund was. Mm. Um, so, you know, everything's growing and going in the right direction. And I think there's a. There could be, you know, just a, a bit of a tailwind as people try to figure out how to find solid, credentialed, pedigreed minority managers in the post-George Floyd era, hopefully, you know, that's something we can continue to raise our hand and say, well, we are that. And you should have been looking at us regardless of George Floyd, but if yeah. that makes you look fine, <laughs> you know, it's just, we'll, we'll take it. So, no, that's great. That's great. So what type of uh, deals and opportunities are you guys looking for uh, in that space? Sure. We, we like to focus on transactions between 25 million and 75 million of total cap doesn't mean that we couldn't do bigger, but we love that space. I mean, historically that space, and even to this day, that space or that transaction size really does outperform larger markets Mm -hmm. and larger deals. So if you think about large core deals or big funds that tend to buy deals that are a hundred million dollars in total cap or more funds that manage deals that are smaller tend to outperform you know, per frequent analysis in their data, which makes sense, right? Because, you know, the largest block of, of capital reserved for commercial real estate on the equity side is really housed in just a bunch of mega funds. Mm-hmm. And while it seems like there's a lot of players, all those smaller players are collectively managing the minority amount of dollars. And so those larger players can't do, you know, smaller deals. So this gives us a space where we think we have an advantage, we have sophistication and experience track record and relationships, but, you know, we don't have that hyper efficiency from a ton, ton of dollars overwhelming the space. So we like to stay in that transaction side. You know, we build a core of our business around multifamily real estate, industrial real estate and office, but we can do other things, you know, in terms of grocery anchored retail, limited service hotels and the like. Um, We have those in our experience set, but we really are, you know, into sort of creating affordable housing, whether it be regulated affordable or just market rate that's just well-priced and can target the middle market. You know, we'll build stuff, but today I think we're more interested in building things that might be surface parked, have a lower basis, and can meet the needs of, you know, somebody not wanting to live in a a tower downtown. Industrial, we love. It's just the value proposition there is just tremendous if you just look at the fact that online retail will increasingly become a larger part of retail over time. And we, you know, had a period over the last 15 years where so much industrial got taken out of the stock from the years people were making cool lofts and Mm. cool office buildings and stuff like that. So there's a bit of supply in that space, but overall, especially in the smaller space and last mile, we love the opportunity to create much more of that type of product. Been very successful with that. And we'll value add that or we'll redevelop it or build it ground up. And in office, we like to stay in sort of your small boutique stuff, 200,000 square foot, 
reformatting office to make it cool and open, roof decks, bike racks, things that are in good locations, but, you know, uh, in buildings that have not been maintained, maybe were class B or C, and just making, you know, these nice jewel boxes, as, as we call them sometimes. And of course, like I mentioned, grocery anchored retail pretty much is the way that we like to play retail. And, you know, if we can do preferred interest on hotels, you know, we think the hotel sector is totally fine, right? It's really just responding to COVID. There's nothing mm-hmm. fundamentally wrong with the sector. So right. we can buy something opportunistically there. We certainly would and invest. And, you know, so that, you know, that rounds up what we like to do. And we like to perform in the niches in some of those spaces as well. So we can find data centers or cold storage inside the industrial box. That's great because we love those niches. Um, if we can do um, different forms of successful and proven micro housing within affordable, you know, housing, you know, pocket mm-hmm. or multifamily value add, value add we'll, we'll do that stuff as well. Yeah, gotcha. So on the industrial side, you're in that 25 to 75 as well or a smaller price point on the industrial side? Yeah, I mean, this is a very astute question. We tend to, we could do you know, 25 to 75, we, we probably won't um, do the upper end just because that would end up in us building like bombers, yeah. which is not exactly. necessarily what we want to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can make money doing that. We're selling a 770,000 square foot asset that's in our fund right now and for like a huge number. And that's a pretty big building. Um, and it's been super successful. I mean, we're going to have astronomical IRR on it, but Think we think there's just much more velocity, protection, tenant demand, sort of in your fifty thousand square foot to maybe four four hundred thousand square foot single or multi-tenant mm-hmm. opportunity. You just need a lot more of that as opposed to sort of just playing the bomber space, which feels a little bit more binary. <laughs> no, yeah, and that, that's kind of why I was wondering because um, you know, industrial is unique. Uh, I agree with you. I, you know, it, it became in vogue once, really, when COVID. Started well even before that because Amazon started really showing people the value of of having those distribution centers, and uh, it's grown from there. And I don't think it's going to do anything but continue to grow. But it, it used to be an overlooked sector, you know, for a long time. So so it's funny. I, I feel like it's a sector that's been overlooked by us. Like I really wish more of us would participate in that sector. We tend to want to be in multifamily, and I get that, but you know, it's it's a much less complex build. Yeah. Actually, uh, much faster time horizon, and it has all the demographic and secular trend tailwinds that multifamily has, right? People are going to yeah. shop online more. People have increasing expectations as this younger generations get older. They are sort of growing with the expectation that things will get to their door. Basically, within hours is where they're moving towards. Which just need you know you need more spaces in urban centers to get assets you know product closer to people so that it can be farmed out. So if you just think about the sector in general, it's a lot of you know long term trends that are in its favor. You know I would love to see more people of color become operators in that space, but you know it's it's it it was really sort of a cowboy space as you're alluding to yeah, yeah. for years. That's recently. I don't want to say recently, but that has become more in, in, in institutionalized mm-hmm. over time. And um, I think it's it's a great space to be in. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, lot of huge opportunity there in that particular space. One thing I wanted to do at, at this point was kind of open it up for questions. We uh, It's been a great conversation, but we have a lot of guests here with us today. So if you have any questions, um, 
you know, either raise your hand or put your, your comment in the chat and we'll try to get to you and uh, see if we can uh, follow through and get some, some answers to your questions from Dale as, as we continue to go forward. So um, while you guys are thinking about that and getting your questions together, Dale, talk to me. You, you mentioned a few times about minorities in the space. Um, you and I both know that there isn't many of us, you know, operating in this space and especially not at a high level. So um, over the next five to 10 years, you know, what would you love to see and how do you feel you're being part of uh, changing that dynamic? I mean, you know, what I'd love to see is just more ownership. Mm-hmm. So I probably would like to see more of us ascend to leadership and in institutions, but at the same time, our fair share of people build their own platforms, whether it be as operators or investment managers and um, to see more of us be established as managers for institutions. Again, whether we're vertically integrated as operators and getting investment or we're managing, you know, funds and, and investing, you know, that's, that's sort of where we tend to click out, not necessarily in purpose, just we just don't get the opportunities that other people get, undoubtedly. Uh, you look at the level of success that those of us in the field have had and how that is converted to becoming institutional managers for large LPs. It's just not the same as everybody else. And it just frankly isn't the same for everybody that's not a white male. Um, so you're seeing women, uh, white women a little bit more and so on and so forth. But there's clearly a, just a disenfranchisement from making that jump that others you know, our mainstream counterparts have not experienced and are able to get those roles because of family, friends, history, pedigree, you name it. There's a risk factor just associated with managers of color. And uh, so I would love to see that mm-hmm. go away and all this data that proves that diverse managers outperform just generally start to be accepted because it's it's been researched and proven by McKinsey and BCG and Harvard. But, you know, when you're out in the field, it's still this additional perception of risk that, you know, love to see go away. As far as what I'm trying to do, you know, I'm really trying to be a part of the solution. You know, my management team is people of color. Our firm, you know, is, you know, well over 50% minority or women. Basis, to its credit, has invested over a billion dollars with people of color, um, emerging developers and operators. So it's really just about, you know, being the change that you want to see. And, you know, so I hope to invest, you know, equity at an increasing clip with managers of color. Obviously, I have investors and I'll have constraints in what I'll be able to do, but I'm looking and hopeful and to to find those people and, and be able to give them the leg up, you know, if we can sort of like thread that needle, right? Because the ones that are advanced kind of don't need me. And the ones that are not advanced enough, at the end of the day, it's not about me or them being people of color. It's just there's a sort of institutional muster that you have to cut. And so if I can help someone that's close move the needle, you know, those are the types of things that I want to do in addition to just, you know, hiring and empowering people of color to, to, to be in the industry and to work. Yeah, yeah. All very good points. Appreciate you bringing that out and sharing those <clears throat> those thoughts. And um you know, I, I think you're right. You know, it's it's almost like you said, a, a degree of of skepticism 
you know, if is this person for real? Can they really do this? You know, is their is their bio really for real? You know, that type of thing. And uh, you know, a lot of that just happens because you don't see that many minorities in that space at that level. So it's like, well, I've never seen this before. So is it for real? You know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And um, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. But uh, let me let me jump in here and grab uh, Onobi had a, if I'm pronouncing your name right, had a question. Go ahead, if you don't mind. Uh, what's what did you want to uh, ask Dale this morning? And thanks for being with us today. I appreciate it, Joel. Uh, Dale, my question is, um, you you were going over your background. And you said you started off in private equity. You didn't have the opportunity to start on the lending or debt side. If you were to start on the lending or debt side, what what do you think would have been most optimal to get you on the trajectory that you're on today? Would it have been an asset management or or an underwriter? Or does it even matter, do you think? Yeah, look, I think when you're on the equity side, you know, at some point you have to become a good underwriter. And underwriting debt is not the same as underwriting equity. Clearly, you have to go further into the risk spectrum and the capital stack if you own equity. But the tools are the same. You're underwriting the same thing, the same asset. And so at the end of the day, I would certainly become, make sure that I had the sort of quantitative chops to underwrite deals, everything from you know, comps and sales and exits to just the math of underwriting and then taking it personal in terms of learning how to underwrite waterfalls and things like that that pertain to the equity side, right? Because that's what it comes down to. We have this deal and then now we have to create an equity waterfall structure to divvy up the equity value between investors at the LP level and the GP level and walk through these more complex structures that you don't have to do on debt, right? You know, you're going to have an exit and then you're just going to pay off a loan. So you have to take it upon yourself to learn that extra part. But that extra part sits on top of this whole experience of underwriting real estate. And so I think you should have that. Asset management is also good. But, you know, without underwriting experience, I just don't think you, you get enough from debt to be appealing on the equity side if you can't underwrite, you know, if you really can't walk through that math. So I would say definitely try to get both, but um, make sure you, you know, you, you're learning how to underwrite, underwrite deals. I appreciate it. All Thank right. you. Okay. All right. Thanks, Anomi. Appreciate that. Uh, Bruce, you had a couple of questions here. You want to want me to read them or you want to go ahead and state them? I can state them. Dale, thanks for all of your information. I appreciate it. We all do. What's the next top market in the five boroughs that uh, that's either in the process or or on the, in the future, in the near future? It's a little hard to say because it just depends on how you look at it. I mean, I think clearly one would say the Bronx by far. I would say the Bronx just because I think there's so much more opportunity ahead. Right. And less so that it's the next because it's happening. It's already happening. I mean, I was at uh, Zona de Cuba, which is a big outdoor lounge and restaurant on the roof of the old post office. It's one of the most phenomenal facilities in New York City. Like if somebody would have told you that that type of space would be in the Bronx, <laughs> you'd be like, yeah, nah. come on. <laughs> you know, like, you're like that's, I don't know what you're talking about. And so I, I would definitely say the Bronx is going to be a big beneficiary going forward. It's already taken off, but I think you're going to see that just further institutionalization. 
And then I also think sort of uh, Jamaica, Queens, where I'm from, um, or grew up part of time. Also, because if you just think about what's happening around there, and you know, Joe, we know good people with Meredith and BRP doing stuff over there, but right at something train station in <clears throat> South Jamaica, Queens is the Long Island Railroad, the J, the Z, the A, the F, the T. I mean, like, so if you think about it, they have like Penn Station, you have down by Barclay Center uh, and Fulton Station, a bunch of trains. And then you have Queens. This is the only other place where you just have this collection of transportation. So, you know, you, you go to you go to Jamaica Queens and very similar. This is a place where I definitely saw multiple shootings, <laughs> like you know, people getting robbed and whatever. And today there's just like 400 unit buildings and 300 unit buildings. And so like when you have someone now can live in South Queens for $2,000 a month in a brand new apartment, $2,500 in a brand new apartment, but then spend extra money and buy a Long Island Railroad pass from Substance Station to Manhattan in 10 and 15 minutes. That's the difference of like a $2,000 apartment. It's equivalent in Manhattan would be like $6,000. So, you know, you see that growing and clearly I think that's not another opportunity that will happen. So those would be my two places that I think would be great. Obviously, South Queens is not as vast as vast and the area around South Queens I'm talking about is the one right around the the train hubs, whereas Bronx is just littered with, you know, the two to three to four to five trains. So you, you can build apartment buildings off of multiple train stops along the way. They have lots of up zoning that that can be there. It's in sort of the line above Manhattan. So, you know, you can sort of live there and take the train down. And it's just taken shape. I mean, the Universal Hip Hop Museum, I think, is going to be a global tourist destination. Mm -hmm. It's just changing. And quite frankly, it's just probably just time, right? Like Bronx just had a bad rep, but it's it's still pretty close to Manhattan. It's really no reason for it not to sort of be, you know, the next place. So I, I would say the Bronx would be the lead. Well, let, let me just add that I uh, I went to college in a small little Catholic university in Jamaica, so <laughs> you may be familiar with it. Yeah, it's great. St. <laughs> John's University. Yep. Other than uh, Project Reef, what uh, what associations, commercial real estate associations, do you think are the best for building knowledge and relationships? For this group, I would say the Real Estate Executive Council, by far, that's my favorite organization, period. Not only because the people in it are prolific and do their thing in the space, but it's us. So it's just like rejuvenation every time we get together. Mm -hmm. It's just just like a great time to see yourself and people that look like you that are doing their thing and and for us to do business together. And it's just great. That'd be one. I'm I'm a member of ULI, I'm a council member. So I think that's also a great organization. I would definitely try to get in there and definitely try to focus on becoming a council member, which, you know, takes some politics. But, you know, obviously the councils are filled with really prolific people in the industry and bring in sort of you know what your peers are thinking at the top of the industry. And so that's really good. I think if you're on the multifamily side, 
NMHC is definitely one. I was a member of the president's real estate roundtable. That that probably that one's probably a little harder to get in, but um, it's a great organization if if you can get in. You know, you got to be ready to be all on your game because that's like the super blue chip of everyone. So it's a great room, lots of power. So this is the biggest lobbying organization for the industry. So I would certainly um, recommend that. Although you know that that's not going to be an organization that everybody can get into at, every, at, at any given time. But yeah, those are the ones that I think really stand out. ULI with a goal to be on the council and NMHC if you're really in multifamily. And then, of course, if you're a person of color, we should be a no-brainer. All right. <clears throat> Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate the questions and uh, your support as always. Let's get uh, in Jerry. She is uh, a rock star just coming off the pad. So <laughs> talk um, to us. Thank you. Um Dale, I, you know, just thanks for today. Uh, you know, Joel never fails to deliver rock stars, real rock stars <laughs> to the table. And, uh, you know, four pages of notes and a litany of questions later, I'm just going to ask you the one and then make a couple of requests from you to, uh, one, come back and talk to our REAP group, our REAP alumni group. Uh, there's a few on here who I'm so glad made it on, but there's so many more that really, really need to hear from you. So I'm going to go ahead and make that request to you now. But you said something that really uh, caught my attention. Bruce uh, asked uh, about it a little bit, but for me, it's very poignant because I'm, you know, with the assistance of Joel and other people that I've been introduced to have seen the benefits of being in the industrial space. Now, like you said, it's not the hot, attractive thing. It's not the sexy kind of investment. People are starting to get a hold of it. But how can we be part of the solution in encouraging people of color to invest in the industrial space or at least start to become educated about it too. Yeah. I think, you know, at the end of the day, I can't, and I'm sure they exist, but I can't point to anyone. So Tammy always has a saying, if you can't see it, you won't be it. And I just really can't point to anyone that's an actual operator in that space. That's black. I'm sure there's someone. But it just escapes me. So I think the biggest thing is really to look, if you have real estate expertise, to just look and model the exercise. So this wouldn't just be for a regular person, but for someone who's in the industry. And I think once you do that, you can't escape. Like, I can build this and not miss. I'm basically tilting up four walls. Now, it wasn't like, the best and brightest of our, you know, white male counterparts that did this stuff, you know, they're tilting up four walls and, you know, they're, they're making a killing. So it's something that we can do. And I think once you understand the value proposition of being able to develop something of that complexity versus the complexity of multifamily, for someone, it has to make sense once you do that. I just don't think people are doing that, right? Because we, on on average, everyone just whether you're white, black, red, or yellow, we we all know what it is to live someplace. We're familiar with that, right? We don't all know what it is to be in an industrial facility. We actually all know what it is to work in an office somewhere. So there's just this lack of familiarity with it. But I would just kind of tell people like you need to research really what it means to develop an industrial building in a mile. When you look at it, you're going to see like, hmm, it's an easier build. 
It's a cheaper build. Faster build. Um, it's a faster build, much <laughs> faster. You know, you're talking like 10 months. Yeah. And so, you know, why wouldn't I want to, 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 to try to do that? Now, the question that they'll have to ask themselves is how do they account for developing relationships with tenants things like that but there's brokers out there for that that that's surmountable if you pick the right land and in the right site so yeah you know i just think it's 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 something that the real work right now today is just talking about it like we are so that people go and look because that's what's missing we don't have anybody to look to we got to encourage people to look and say hey if you can do this other stuff you can definitely do this and it's faster cheaper and that 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 might at least be something you should think about. Um, and so that would be, you know, the unfortunate, the honor, the, the honest answer. We just got to talk about it more. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Looking to get in touch with you. All right. Good. And I spoke at, I spoke at REAP graduation in New York. So. Well, we, we want, we want to have you back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Actually, you know, it's interesting, Dale, you you kind of brought back to my mind. I've been, as you know, pretty busy on my multifamily projects. And um, there's an industrial site where I was even able to talk the guy into a sale lease back on half the building, and then I could lease out the other half. And uh, just being so busy with everything else, forgot about it. So I appreciate you bringing that back to my, my focus. So, um, you know, we could take a look at that. But I might circle back with you on that off offline. So, yeah. Appreciate that. Quinn, good to have you here today. He's got a question wanted to bring up. Quinn, you want to ask your question or you want me to read it off here? Joe, you do such a great job doing it. You, you, you got it. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Curious to know if Dale had any sponsors, coaches, mentors, et cetera, that assisted with opening doors or advising on opportunities he pursued. Also wondering in a career that predominantly uh, is occupied by white males, if there has been allies within the majority that assisted with providing opportunities for deals or other significant contributions to his career. So kind of a two-part question there, Dale. Um, have you had any mentors or other ones that have assisted you open doors? And uh, have you also kind of had that same help on the um, white male side of the business? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. You know, I would I would say that, you know, my career is not an overwhelming product of all this great mentorship unfortunately in, in, in real estate, but I've definitely had the benefit of just great, you know, quasi peers, people right above me sort of, you know, that I know I could go to for anything. And it, it might not have been like that classic big mentorship, but, you know, you know, being friends on the broker side with one of my good friends, fraternity brother, Roland Merchant, like having a senior guy in a major brokerage invaluable so so i wouldn't call that mentorship but like you know having homies like you know <laughs> it is huge i mean tremendous value people like you know jim simmons who's now has aslan partners but was at aries and before that apollo that i could call and talk about you know my spin out with and just ask questions when headhunters would call me just great value people like tammy um, obviously, who's just, you know, helping me now even and really is, you know, my chief backer here and partner has been invaluable. 
And when I was at AIG, you know, like Jeff Daniels, who is now the president of Greystone, but, you know, was sort of like the head asset manager when I was working acquisitions. But someone I could look to that was a brother, but was respected in the organization and also was authentically himself. And so, you know, absolutely they're there. But, you know, I didn't have like that one magic man that just sprinkled dust on me. And <laughs> and I was, you know, in a, it just didn't have that. And there's been others that I didn't name. But, you know, what I would just say is it's being tied in with your peers in the industry is really important because I, I got a lot of peer mentoring, if you will, and and have been a peer mentor. And that's been really helpful. On the majority side, yeah, I've had a couple. Don Huffner was the CIO of the Americas. He was also Sam Zell's number two, CIO of the Americas for AIG, Sam Zell's number two. And I, I, uh, when he was at EOP and was my boss's boss for years and worked with him, built a relationship with him. And he's been someone that's looked out for me. When I first was going to launch a fund, I was like, I need money. He was just like, how much? Like 5 million, okay. And I was like, 10 would be better. I mean, he gave me like 12 million bucks invaluable and he's been a mentor he he made sure and was helpful me getting on a uli council also um you know i i've been put up for you know some public boards and stuff like that and those have come from white males that i've worked with over the time and have done well and so i i named those two just because those have come from people that have sponsored me and backed me and and, you know, things like that. I've also had some white friends in the industry that are back, but those are a little bit less because at the end of the day, I'm equity. So I'm someone that people want to please when you're, when you're the equity provider. So I've definitely had good support from lots of people in the industry on that note, but that's just more, we develop friendships. I'm their investor. You treat your investors with care, but I, I would name, you know, Don Huffner and some other people like that that are white males in the industry that had power that have done helpful things to me that I worked for and they appreciated my work ethic and have been supportive over time. Yeah. What sounds good. And I would just say before we go, yeah, um, yeah. I, would, I would just say you don't need a ton of those, Quinn. You just need strategically one or two of those at the right time. You know, you just you just need someone that when you're at that point, whether they're black or white, just to push you there. Or, you know, so you, you're not going to have a billion of those, but you just need them when you need them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. You know, the thing about it also that I was even talking to Dennis Pimmington the other day about a similar issue and it's, uh, you know, keeping in touch with people over the years and not burning bridges because you don't know when those relationships or those individuals might get promoted to the next level. And, uh, and then they're there in that position when you need them, as you just mentioned. So, you know, it's always good to, uh, keep relationships, be cool with people and, you know, never burn those bridges cause you never know. So. Yeah. And I am, I am, a self-proclaimed expert at that. So I, that's what I do. Because all those relationships you're just talking about were all things that I, I never, you want friends before you need them. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, if, if, if you, if you got to have a friend when you need something, you're probably, you're probably screwed. Yeah. Right. You know, so yeah. you, you, you need friends before you need something. And that's a big part of it. You know, um, I, I tell an interesting story. Um, I, I'm a Twigo fellow, those that know what that is, it's an MBA fellowship. And um, years and years ago, 15, 16 years ago, however long ago it was, I was nominated for 40 under 40 and had to receive the award. My wife was there and down. And I'm like closing the deal. 
So my wife's in the gown, I'm in a tuxedo and I leave the gala after it's over and I'm in my office. My wife is in a, a dress and I'm like sitting in my cube working on a deal. And my boss, Don Huffner, or my boss's boss who backed me in my fund, walks out and sees me there in a tux and my wife in a gown. He's like, what are you doing? I'm just like, hey, I just got this award, went to this gala, but got to finish up this deal. I just want to make sure everything is good, whatever. It's that type of stuff where, you know, when I went to him for money, I'm sure in his mind, he was just like, I am not worried about this guy working. <laughs> like, you know, um, like this guy's going to work. He's going to do the job. That That's the least of my worries. And just, you know, staying in contact, grabbing dinner, you know, when I'm in their markets, flying in, just catching up for a drink and that stuff's invaluable. That's really where it comes from. Yeah. Well, good point, Dale. We certainly appreciate it. We're a little over on time. Is there any, uh, any final words that you have for us today that you want to share with the group? No, I would just say, you know, spend as much time as you can developing your personal chops. That's step number one. After you do that, just pick the right time to ask for your worth and, and be really good about that. Cause we're not good about that. You know, we, we, we tend to take less, do more. And once you know that you know what you're doing, know that you have your value, you know what your value is, then, you know, ask for it. But spend the time to really become an expert in whatever it is that you want to do and pursue in the industry. Don't underestimate your peers, the people around you. People around you are going to become the leaders, you know, so you've really got to think about that. I cannot tell you how many times I've looked up and, the guy who was an analyst when I was an associate is like running a group somewhere, you know, and, and um, yeah. you know, so it's really a relationship business and focus on that. And, you know, and if you let me tell everything, you know, it's just, you know, just put God first and really try to do you authentically. Cause I have, I have made a lot of decisions that at the time would not been popular, but they were right for me. And I have, it's catapulted me, you know, and I think people underestimate just trying to find your success, not what everybody else is calling success. You know, your success, I think, uh, I think things will go well. All right. Well, good points. Good points. Appreciate you sharing that and being with us today. Uh, I know we spoke um, some time ago. You were trying to get something going in Atlanta, some some function you were you were putting on and looking to, to roll out. So let's keep the dialogue going as relates to that and everything else we got going on and. As always, you know, we've been brothers and for a long time. And so we appreciate, uh, you know, being able to reconnect and whatnot. And like you said, thanks to Zoom, right? So we yeah, man, I appreciate you having me, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure. And um, certainly want to thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for being here today for our mornings with Joel, the CRE podcast. We certainly appreciate having my good friend Dale Burnett on the phone, on the line today, rather. And uh, look forward to catching up with all you guys a little bit later. So, Dale, thanks as always. And uh, look forward to speaking again soon. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.